0: Hey there friends welcome to having a blast with Kyle Devlin I am your host Kyle Devlin this is a podcast about music more specifically about pop-punk music for the majority of the time anyways today I'm really excited because this is the first official episode of the show today we're gonna be discussing my favorite album of all time the one and only dookie by Green Day yes that's right we're gonna do a deep dive into the history of Dookie, all of the facts associated with it, and man, this album, what a behemoth. I think culturally it was a product of the 90s, but it has lived on. It's one of those albums that I revisit over and over and over again, and it never gets old, and it never sounds old. It just always sounds fresh and new, and it's got this, this energy to it. I'll never forget the moment I first heard Basket Case on MTV. They were playing it on 120 minutes. I just happened to be up late at night. I was 10 years old. I can remember it vividly. I was sitting on the carpeted floor in my parents' house that they still own, and we were watching TV, me and my cousin. And I remember me and my cousin looking at the TV, seeing the video for basket case and me just immediately loving the hook and just it was incredible to see and there was all these bright colors and they were in this mental institution and there was palm muted guitars and just really infectious melodies it was really upbeat i just remember exactly where i was in that time and place when i heard that song for the first time and i've pretty much been obsessed with green day ever since they have been my favorite band for almost 30 years now and i can appreciate something about every one of their albums and dookie remains my favorite record of all time and it's just it's a comforting record that i refer back to often anytime i want to feel like a kid again anytime i want to feel that wave of nostalgia i just immediately put on dookie i listen to it in my car i listen to it when i'm cleaning my house it's just one of those records that will always be a part of me And I'm very, very thankful to Green Day and I'm very thankful to the record itself because it's given me hours and hours of joy over my lifetime. So I'd like to do a deep dive of Dookie, if you'll indulge me. And I want to go through some of the information behind the making of the record. I want to talk about Rob Cavallo, the producer. I want to talk about the songs. I want to talk about everything that we know, on record anyways, about this particular album and I want to share it with you guys. So without further ado, here we go. This is the deep dive of Dookie by Green Day. So a lot of people think that Dookie is actually the first record by Green Day or their debut album, but they actually had a couple records before that. And perhaps we'll do a deep dive of those as well. Those are classics in and of themselves. But Dookie is the third studio album. And actually, it's the major label debut. The band Green Day, an American punk rock band, whatever you want to call them, they grew up in Oakland, California. We just started Getting into playing punk rock, if you will, just because uh, we just identified with it and we liked it. It wasn't about having a mohawk or it wasn't about having spiked belts or or whatever. It's just about being an individual, and we just stuck by that. I mean, it was there was no proof that you could become famous off of doing it or being huge. We just kept doing what we did, just and we because we enjoyed it and we liked what it represented, and we wanted to be, we wanted to, to be a part of that. Dookie just happened to be released on February 1st, 1994, so early in 94. Reprise Records, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, or was a subsidiary of of Warner Brothers. Reprise was the label that released Dookie. The band's first collaboration with producer Rob Cavallo, who went on to produce many of their other records, he produced this one. It was recorded in late 1993 at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California. It was written mostly by the frontman, Billy Joe Armstrong. He spoke about disenfranchisement. He talked about like real feelings that kids have, and I think it clicked with the kids. The album is mostly based around his personal experiences, with themes such as boredom, anxiety, relationships, and sexuality. The album was promoted with five singles. Longview was the first official single. Basket Case soon followed. About everything, all the A re-recorded version of Welcome to Paradise was the third single. Jim, mother, Why, when I Come Around was the fourth single and arguably the most successful of all the singles and maybe the most well-known Green Day song that exists. Well, heard you loud. And the radio-only version single of she. she, she in all by Myself was a hidden track or a secret track at the end of the record, and it was performed by the drummer Trey Cool. That's the song that you hear at the end that he sings about being all alone and doing naughty things. No one was looking. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the background and the recording of the record. Following the underground success of the band's second studio album, Kerplunk, which came out in 1992. A number of major labels really wanted to get a hold of Green Day. A lot of record labels became interested in the band Green Day and it makes sense because at that time they were selling a boatload of records on an independent record label called Lookout Records from the Bay Area where they were from in Oakland. He had that same attitude, that same command as if he were playing to 60,000 people you know kind of a mixture of uh, affection and disdain you know know, he was already a rock star even though it was just like these five kids sitting on the floor you know and and at the same time he was really warm and inclusive you know he he he, like talked to them and said thanks for coming and I really appreciate you being here it was it was a it was just you know before it was two or three songs into it um, I said well, I'm going to make a record with these guys and I told him so when when Billy asked me after it's, you know kind of in his like shy 16-year-old way well would you would you think Were we all right and I said I want to make a record with you guys and he says oh okay and that was that was the beginning and representatives from these major labels attempted to entice the band to sign by inviting them for meals to discuss a record label deal with one of the representatives even inviting them to Disneyland. So you can imagine at this point in their career, they're selling a boatload of albums on an independent label. The major labels are catching wind of this and they want to get their hands on it. And at that point, Nirvana, Grunge, it was all exploding, continuing to explode. It had already exploded by that point. And Green Day was having a lot of success in the underground. So the major labels wanted a piece of that action. And they wanted to make some money off of Green Day. So, of course, they're going to start enticing the band. So they're inviting them to dinner, and they're trying to relate to the band. They're talking to the band. And, you know, they want to go back to their boss, which is the CEO of the label, or anybody that's higher up at the label than them. And they want to say, hey, guess who I might be able to snag? We can get Green Day if we play our cards right. So the band, Green Day... They declined a lot of these advances until meeting with producer and reprise representative Rob Cavallo, who would go on to produce Dookie. So just basically, as I'm finishing mixing an album for Jeff and Elliot, they get Green Day. They put a a four song demo and one of the songs was Basket Case. I don't think Longview was on there. She was on there and it was a cassette. As I was mixing one night, it was like 12 at night. They put the cassette on, they go, Rob, you gotta listen to this, we think this is great. So, of course, I'm thinking, Ugh, I'm tired, last thing I wanna do is do some AR. I've been, been working with the Muffs for four months, every night, you know, it's late. But I put the cassette in on my way home, and I hear this music come out, and I was just like, I gotta sign these guys. It took me like two seconds. I don't know. We just kind of talked to Rob, and we ended up really liking him. He had a strong opinion of music. I think we were really impressed with that. You know, he was just a huge Beatles fan, and uh, he played guitar. And he was a producer. He really wanted to um, put out put out a record. And I just think when it came down to it, he was the guy that sort of made the most sense. And just because it was kind of like he was a musician, and he had and he knew what the mentality of, of a musician was. They were impressed by Rob's work with fellow California band, The, the Muffs. No way, and later remarked that Cavallo was the only person that they could really talk to and relate with and connect with. Eventually, the band left their independent record label, Lookout Records, on friendly terms or not so friendly terms. I don't worry. I don't go walk What's around there? worrying about getting my ass kicked. Um, you know, if some, if some complete genius comes up to me and hassles me <laughs> over, <laughs> over, you know, what I've got, you know, what I do with my life, and and the fact that I make music, you know, and he doesn't want to have an intelligent conversation about it. Well, you know, then you just avoid that individual, you know. But the complaint is not about you making music, but about you making money Mm -hmm. coming out of a punk thing. Hey, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. My opinion is this is what I like to do, and this is what I'm going to continue to do. And if I make money, that's my business. That's right. That's all I've got to say. I'm not going to justify myself. We're not going to justify ourselves. It's not worth justifying. And signed to Reprise. And there's a lot of history about what happened with Green Day and Lookout and what happened with Gilman Street and all that. And I'm sure, I'm sure at some point we will go down the history of that because it's a really fascinating story. It's an interesting story about Green Day, their early days playing in Oakland, playing at Gilman. So eventually the band left Lookout, their independent label. And Lookout made a lot of money off of Green Day. They sold a lot of records, a lot of 7-inches. So Lookout has Green Day to thank for a lot of their success, especially early on. And the unfortunate side effect of signing to a major label is it caused many of the band's original fans from Gilman and the surrounding area and the surrounding clubs that they played to regard Green Day as sellouts. They got branded as sellouts for signing to a major label, which wasn't uncommon around this time. There was a bit of a power play when it came to punk rock and punk rock fans. And the club... Gilman Street has since banned Green Day from entering since signing to a major label. They're not allowed to, although I'm pretty sure Billy Joe has been seen at some of the shows there in the last 15 years or so. But reflecting back on the period, that particular period, lead vocalist Billy Joe Armstrong, he told Spin Magazine in 1999, I couldn't go back to the punk scene whether we were the biggest success in the world or the biggest failure, and he's talking about signing to a major label and the consequences and the repercussions of signing to a major label and the things that would happen afterwards, he said, the only thing I could do was get on my bike and go forward. And it's pretty funny that he mentions going forward because going forward is exactly what Green Day did. I think forward momentum was pretty much the only direction they went after Dookie. Cavallo, Rob Cavallo, was chosen as the main producer of the album with legendary Jerry Finn as the mixer. I think some people assume Jerry Finn produced Dookie, but he actually only mixed it. So Rob Cavallo was the producer along with a band, and Jerry Finn got to mix the raw tracks that were given and recorded from Rob Cavallo. Green Day originally gave the first demo tape to Cavallo for the Dookie tracks. And after listening to it, Rob, on the ride home, he sensed that he had stumbled onto something big, shocker. The band's recording session for Dookie lasted only three weeks and the album was actually mixed twice. Armstrong claimed that the band wanted to create a drier sound, something similar to the Sex Pistols album or the first Black Sabbath albums. The band felt the original mix to be unsatisfactory. If I were to guess, I would say it was probably a little too wet. If he was saying he wanted direct signal and dryness, then it was probably an album that had maybe too much reverb on it, so maybe it sounded a little bit more dated. I think if you listen to Dookie, it still sounds punchy. It still sounds crisp, and it does have that kind of dryness to it. It sounds like a band playing live. Billy Joe, Armstrong later set of their studio experience everything was already written all we had to do was play it and I believe that to be true. He probably had a lot of those songs demoed. Of course, they had Welcome to Paradise already on plunk so they knew exactly how they wanted to record that. It probably didn't take a ton of extra pre-production. If you listen to the Kerplunk version of Welcome to Paradise and then you listen to the Dookie version, of course, sonically, the Dookie version sounds better. But it's about the same exact song. There isn't a huge difference between the two. And sonically... It sounds a little bit more updated on Dookie. There's a couple more layers, but other than that, it's about the same layout of the song. The same skeleton exists. Dookie went on to receive much critical acclaim upon its release, and it even won the Band a Grammy Award. I did not realize this. I thought their first Grammy was for American Idiot, but they actually won a Grammy for Best Alternative Album in 1995. Dookie was also a worldwide success, reaching number two in the United States and the top five in several other countries. It's credited with bringing punk rock to the mainstream popularity and propelling Green Day to worldwide fame. And at this point, I think everybody pretty much knows who Green Day is. They're basically this generation's Rolling Stones. That's how I like to describe them. And it was later certified, Dookie was, it was later certified Diamond by the RIAA, and has sold close to 20 million copies worldwide, making it the band's best-selling album and one of the best-selling albums worldwide in 2003 rolling stone placed dookie at number 193 on their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time what a feat maintaining the rating in a 2012 revised list they still were put on the list for the 500 greatest albums of all time rolling stone re-ranked the album at number 375 on another revised list So it went down a little bit. I'd have to take a look at that list to see in comparison, in context, where it is. But it's definitely one of the most important albums, I think, of our lifetime in popular music. So now I want to talk a little bit about the writing and the composition of the record. So much of the album's content was written by Billy Joe Armstrong, except Eminius Sleepus, written by the bassist Mike Durnt. And the hidden track, All By Myself, which was written exclusively by drummer Trey Cool. I think it's pretty funny he wrote that song all by himself, and they just decided to stick it on there as a secret track. The album touches upon various experiences of the band members, and included subjects like anxiety and panic attacks, masturbation, sexual orientation, boredom, mass murder, divorce, and ex-girlfriends. All of the above, apparently. So the thing I like about this record in particular is it really kind of outlines the mental health aspect of what a lot of young adults are going through. And It's clearly evident Billy Joe Armstrong was experiencing panic. He was experiencing anxiety during the writing of this record, and it's reflected in the songs. And you listen to a song like Basket Case, I mean, that song exhibits what it's like to have a panic attack. He says things like, I give myself the creeps, and there's there's a sense of looming dread in some of the words. I think anybody who has ever had a panic attack can can relate to the song, can relate to the overall vibe, can relate to the pain and just the scariness and the overall sense of dread and panic that comes with random and sudden anxiety attacks. And so I think he, he tapped into that, and I think people really to that. So, Billy Joe wrote the song Having a Blast, for which this podcast is named, when he was in Cleveland in June 1992. I didn't know that. So, he wrote that pretty early on. Probably right after Kerplunk came out. The single Long View has a signature bass line that the bassist, Mike, actually wrote while under the influence of LSD. Okay, so he was on Psychedelic Compounds when he wrote that bass line. And it's arguably the catchiest bass line of all time. I mean, I I absolutely love that bass line. I hum it to myself all the time. It's a lot of fun to play. If you play guitar, you've probably played it on guitar or bass guitar at some point in your life. Welcome to Paradise, which was actually the third single from Dookie, was originally on the band's second studio album. (laughs) Kerplunk. The song was re-recorded with a less grainy sound for Dookie. Okay, so I mentioned that earlier. It sounds a little bit drier, obviously updated with some major label sheen on it, but the, the second, Welcome to Paradise, is just as good as the first. The song was re-recorded for Dookie, and it's probably a good idea that they decided to do that because it ended up being a pretty successful single for them. The song never had an official music video. However, a certain live performance of the song is often associated as the music video. That was something that was airing on MTV around the time of Dookie and its success. The video is located on Green Day's official website, if anybody ever wants to see it. I'm sure it's it's located online on YouTube somewhere. The hit single, Basket Case, which appeared on many singles charts worldwide, was also inspired by Billy Joe Armstrong's personal experiences. As I said, the song deals with Billy Joe's anxiety attacks, and he claims he was having feelings of going crazy prior to being diagnosed with a generalized anxiety and panic disorder which I'm sure most people can relate to that. It does kind of feel like you're going crazy. And the third verse, in particular, Basket Case references soliciting a male prostitute. I always thought this was interesting. Armstrong noted that I wanted to challenge myself and whoever the listener might be. And so this was a different, different cultural era back in the early 90s. So you got to give Billy Joe props for putting this wordplay in there. He knew he was going to press some buttons with this and it ended up being one of their most popular songs. Basket Case is also looking at the world and saying it's not as black and white as you think. This is a quote from Billy Joe Armstrong. This isn't your grandfather's prostitute. That's what he was referring to. Or maybe it was. So I like that. I like that he's sort of questioning the status quo there. And he's he's making people kind of think about it for a second. The music video was filmed actually in an abandoned mental institution. It's one of the band's most popular songs. One of the band's most well-known songs. I believe it's the highest charted song on their Spotify as well. Sometimes I give myself that- And after a quick search, it is indeed is the highest charting song on their Spotify with over 471 million streams. So not bad. Pretty fantastic song. And it was the first Screen Day song I ever heard. And it was from that music video. I I think eventually I probably would have heard it on the radio and I think I would have loved it just as much. Okay, so the radio single, the radio only single, She. I remember back in the day listening to this song on the radio. I remember hearing She specifically on the radio, but I never thought they made a video for it and I wasn't quite sure if they had done a video and maybe it got scrapped or something, but it's looking like they didn't take the time to make a music video. Music videos back then cost a lot of money, so it really had to be worth it to the label to shell out that much money. They probably could have and it probably would have done very well, especially at that time they were still showing music videos on MTV. (laughs) she was written by billy joe armstrong about a former girlfriend who showed him a feminist poem with an identical title so that's where he got the title for she in return billy joe wrote the lyrics of she and showed them to her showed them to this particular former girlfriend she later moved to ecuador prompting billy joe to put she on the album the same ex-girlfriend is also the topic of the songs Sassafras roots as well as chump which is really interesting because when you listen to the the lyrics of Chump, I always assumed he was talking about a guy, somebody they'd seen that made him angry without him really knowing the person. It's interesting that I'm just now learning he actually wrote Chump about a former ex-girlfriend, and that definitely changes the way I view the song, really. The final single, When I Come Around, arguably the most popular and well-known single, was again inspired by a woman... Though this time, this song was about Billy Joe's wife, whom he's still married to. At the time, it was his former girlfriend, Adrian. So he's married to Adrian as well. If you've ever heard him refer to anybody as 80, the number 80, he's talking about Adrian. Following a dispute between the couple, Armstrong left Adrian to spend some time alone. So I think this is early on in their relationship in the early nineties. The video for When I Come Around features the three band members walking around Berkeley and San Francisco at night. And at the beginning of the music video, they're in a spot and they start walking and eventually they end up in the exact same spot. They end up in the, the original location. So another fun fact about the video of When I Come Around, the future touring member of Green Day and one of Billy Joe's best friends, Jason White, made a cameo in the video with his then-girlfriend. He's kissing his girlfriend in the video. And the song was the band's first top 10 single at number 6 on the Hot 100 Airplay chart and stayed number 1 on the Modern Rock Tracks chart for 7 weeks. 2 weeks longer than Basky Case, which is craziness to me. I'd also hit number two on both the mainstream rock tracks as well as the mainstream top 40 charts. So it was one of their higher charting songs, one of their highest charting songs, in fact. The song Coming Clean on Dookie deals with Billy Joe's coming to terms with his bisexuality when he was 16 and 17 years old. In his interview with The Advocate magazine, he stated that although he has never had a relationship with a man, his sexuality has been something that comes up as a struggle in him. Armstrong wrote the song, in the end, about his mother and her husband. He is quoted as saying, That song is about my mother's husband. It's not really about a girl or anyone directly related to me in a relationship. In the end, it is about my mother. So, interesting. Regarding the packaging and the epic album art, the name of the album is a reference to the band members often suffering from diarrhea, which they refer to as Liquid Dookie. Charming. As a result of eating spoiled food while on tour, and I used to be in a band, I know what it's like to be on tour, you're eating a little too much Taco Bell, you're uh, stopping at gas stations so you you can use the restroom, and so I, I understand and I relate to this. Initially, the band was to name the album Liquid Dookie, however, this was deemed too gross, quote unquote, and so they settled on the name Dookie itself. Okay, good to know. The album artwork was done by fellow East Bay punk Richie Butcher, caused a bit of a controversy, since it depicted bombs being dropped on people and buildings. The setting is a replica of Berkeley's Telegraph Avenue, which, that's a great song by Rancid, Telegraph Avenue. It's one, on one of their last records. I think it was their last record, actually. Yeah, Telegraph Avenue. It's a great song. In the center of the artwork, there's an explosion with the band's name at the top. Billy Joe Armstrong has since explained the meaning of the artwork. I wanted the artwork to look really different. This is what he said. I wanted it to represent the East Bay and where we come from because there's a lot of artists in the East Bay scene that are just as important as the music. So we talked to Richie. He did a 7-inch cover for this band called Raul that I really liked. He's also been playing in bands in the East Bay for years. There's pieces of us buried on the album cover, and this album cover is just iconic at this point. He mentions, Billy Joe mentions, there's one guy with his camera up in the air taking a picture with a beard. He took pictures of bands every weekend at Gilman's. The robed character that looks like Mona Lisa is the woman on the cover of the first Black Sabbath album. ACDC guitarist Angus Young is in there somewhere too. I knew that. I knew he, you can see him pretty prominently. He's got his guitar. The graffiti reading Twisted Dog Sisters refers to these two girls from Berkeley. I think the guy saying the fritter frat boy was a reference to local cop or local cops in general in the East Bay. The back cover on early prints of the CD feature a plush toy of Ernie from Sesame Street, which was airbrushed out. Sometimes I have trouble of a later print for fear of litigation. However, Canadian and European prints still feature Ernie on the back cover. So you can still get that version, and still order it online if you wanna have Ernie on the back. Some rumors suggest that it was removed because it led parents to think that Dookie was a child's lullaby album, (laughs) which I almost find hard to believe, or that the creators of Sesame Street had sued Green Day and therefore they had to brush it off. But really they just chose to do it ahead of time and be proactive so that they wouldn't get sued. Good to know. These are all interesting facts about Dookie. Dookie was released on February 1st, 1994. What's interesting about Dookie, initially, the album only sold 9,000 copies in its first week. It didn't gain commercial success until the summer of 1994. That's when it really broke. That's when Basket Case was released in August, and that's when they really started getting a lot of radio play. Dookie charted in seven countries, peaking at number two on the Billboard 200 in the U.S., and was a success in several other countries, peaking as high as number one in New Zealand. The lowest peak in any country was the United Kingdom at number 13, which is interesting because I would imagine they do very well in the UK. While all the singles from the album charted in a few countries, the hit single, Basket Case, entered the top 10 in the United Kingdom. See, there you go. They had a lot more success later on in the United Kingdom and Sweden. Later in 1995, the album received a Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album with Longview and Basket Case each being nominated for a Grammy as well. Okay, those individual tracks were nominated for a Grammy. Throughout the 1990s, Dookie continued to sell well, eventually receiving Diamond certification in 1999. By 2013, Dookie had sold over 20 million copies worldwide and remains the band's best-selling album. And that's interesting, too, for the fact that I would imagine there's more universal acclaim for American Idiot and the success that followed. But by that point, illegal downloading had already become an issue, for these recording artists. So I'm wondering if Napster hadn't been a thing, if American Idiot would actually be their highest selling album of all time because they've sold a boatload of those records as well. It's pretty incredible what happened to them. And I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss American Idiot in all its glory as well because it's a pretty fascinating story. Okay, so Dookie was released to critical acclaim, lots of it. Bill Lamb at About.com regards it as an album that only gets better with time, and I would agree with that. I believe it's one of those records that the more time you spend with it, it just latches onto your soul. I mean, that's what music does. And sometimes those records that you've spent you know years, decades with, those are the ones that they just sound better and better, and they're just timeless. Since its release, Dookie has been featured heavily in various must-have lists compiled by the music media. Along with the Offspring smash, Dookie has been credited for helping bring punk rock back into the mainstream music culture. And I would probably agree with that. I think that's a fair bet. I remember hearing Brett Gurwitz say that they sold over 100,000 records. And that was sort of unheard of for a band like Bad Religion at the time. And he credited it to Dookie and the success of Green Day. Thomas Nassif at Fuse cited it as the most important pop-punk album of all time, and I have to agree with Thomas. I think that is probably the best descriptor of Dookie in all its glory, and I think every modern pop-punk band owes a debt of gratitude to Dookie, and probably recognizes its relevance and its significance and its overall cultural impact. So some fun facts about Green Day's Dookie, and one that I mention a lot is one that I heard from the producer Rob Cavallo mention one time, and it's the vocals of Billy Joe Armstrong. He said that he did the vocals within two days, and that's including backup vocals. And that is completely unheard of these days. There are people who will spend months on vocals alone doing take after take after take. Green Day Dookie heated all the vocals in two days. That's pretty astonishing and pretty amazing, especially in an era where they weren't pitch correcting everything. So what you hear is what you get. Of course they had million dollar soundboards and the best gear you could possibly imagine, the best microphones and the best preamps and the best outboard gear. But still, pretty incredible the fact that he was able to do all of the vocals for that album. Just for how important that record is alone, the fact that he did it in two days, I'm always amazed when I think about that. And he, I think it's a true testament to how prepared he was when he went into the studio. He must have had those songs completely down. He must have known exactly what he wanted to do as far as the inflection points go, how he wanted to sing each part. Of course, he had Welcome to Paradise already, but still pretty astounding that he managed to get those performances in a mere couple of days. That's really incredible and something that just doesn't happen these days. When it comes to modern technology and modern recordings, there are people that will spend hours and hours and hours getting the proper takes, and then they go in with all their Pro Tools magic and all their tricks and they make those tracks that they've agonized over, the producers and the artists, they make them even more perfect. And they spend hours and hours making them sound as pristine and as clean and as present as possible with all sorts of pitch correction too. So there's a lot of things that we have today that we just didn't have 26 years ago. They didn't even they didn't even know it was coming. Pro Tools wasn't even being used at that point. Pro Tools really became the industry standard in the early 2000s. And it was only being used on modern rock recordings in the late 90s. The earliest album that I can think of that was recorded with Pro Tools would be Less Than Jake's Hello Rock View. And I literally learned that a few weeks ago listening to the Chris DeMakes podcast where he had Howard Benson on who was the producer of that record, and he mentions that that was one of the first albums that was recorded fully with Pro Tools, and they were even automating and pitch-correcting things like the the horns. So it was it was a different time, a different era, a different technology, which is pretty incredible to think about when you think about how far we've come and just what producers are capable of today and what they use today compared to what they were using back then. Green Day their original records including Dookie these were these were recorded to tape where you were literally using a a knife to cut the the tracks and tape the tracks together they would use razor blades to cut these tracks so it's pretty i mean this is primitive stuff it's pretty incredible how far we've come so immediately following the release of Dookie the band embarked on an international tour That began in the United States, for which they used a bookmobile belonging to Trey Cool's father to travel between shows. You've probably seen old photos of them standing in front of the bookmobile. I'm pretty sure one of the members still owns it, still has it. Because I've seen an updated photo where they're in front of the bookmobile. An audience of millions saw Green Day's performance at Woodstock 94, which is a pretty iconic performance. It was put on pay-per-view at the time. That helped the band attract considerably more fans. This event was on location, this event was the location of the infamous mud fight between the band and the crowd, which continued beyond the end of Green Day's set. And it's on YouTube, you should definitely check it out. Watch their Woodstock 1994 performance because it's pretty amazing. And it's a pretty short performance too, I don't think it's even an hour long. Ah! During the fight on stage, during the mud fight, Mike Durant, the bassist, was mistaken as a fan by a security guard who tackled him and then threw him against a monitor, causing him to injure his arm and break two of his teeth. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if that security guard was fired immediately after. Probably not. Uh, the band also appeared at Lollapalooza and the Z100 Acoustic Christmas that year at Madison Square Garden, where Billy Joe performed the song She Naked. I'm sure there's some photos of that somewhere. could probably Google it. Having toured throughout the United States and Canada, the band followed by playing a few shows in Europe before beginning the recording sessions for the subsequent album, Insomniac. So they were just right back into the studio. That's crazy to think about. They were so young, too. They were little babies. I'm pretty sure around this time, Billy Joe was 22, 23 years old. During the tour, when they were in Europe, Billy Joe was quite homesick. This is because his wife, Adrienne, at the time, whom he had married shortly after the release of Dookie, was pregnant during most of the tour, and Billy Joe was upset about being unable to help and care for her. It's still pretty incredible to think about how early on they were having kids in Green Day's career. And his two sons are now fully grown. They're both musicians themselves. So this was 25 years ago. And in 2013, Dookie was played in its entirety at a select European date, or a few dates, as a celebration of the band's upcoming 20th anniversary for the album. I did not get to see Dookie performed in its entirety. I would have loved to have seen one of those shows. If they ever tour that, maybe for the 30th anniversary, I will be the first one to buy tickets. I will be there. No questions asked. The album that we all know and love, Dookie. Let's just read down the titles of the songs. We've got Burnout, Having a Blast, for which this podcast is named. Chump, Longview, Welcome to Paradise, which is the new version. Pulling Teeth, which is the slowest song on the album. Basket Case, She, Sassafra's Roots, When I Come Around, Coming Clean, Emaneus Sleepus, which was written by Mike Dern, In the End, and F.O.D. Mm-hmm. And the song ends at 2.50, followed by a hidden track, All By Myself, which was written and performed by Trey Cool, And it starts at 4.07. Okay, so if you've got the CD, I'm sure you've gone to that secret track and listened to it before. My friends and I, we used to listen to that song and giggle because we knew what it meant. (laughs) So the total length of the album is 39.38, just below 40 minutes long. And what a classic 40 minutes it is. All right. There you have it. The Deep Dive, the first official episode of Having a Blast with Kyle Devlin. I just want to thank you for indulging me and listening this far on all things my favorite album of all time, which is Dookie by Green Day. I've loved this album for most of my life and I, I'm i just very grateful to it. And I'm grateful to you for listening. So if you liked it, drop me a line. And I would imagine we're going to be doing more of these deep dive of albums and things. I'm going to try to get some guests lined up for this particular podcast. So I will keep you all posted about that. In the meantime, I hope you are having a wonderful day. I hope you're having a wonderful week. And I hope you're listening to your favorite music and your favorite records. And if you haven't in a while go check it out blast it loud and have a blast okay all right until next time thanks guys